Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to this week's interview with High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from PersonsGrowRoom.com. Today's interview is with Dr. Elaine Ingham, who is a microbiologist and a soil researcher, and she's also the founder of Soil Food Web Inc. She's also an author of many books involving soil, and she just generally knows a shitload about this kind of thing. So unfortunately, it's only an hour long. She had to leave to go to another, another meeting after this one but she said she will be back soon. And we do have another interview organized with her. So stay tuned for the end of the show. And if you enjoy this episode, then you can find out uh, when the next interview is gonna be. And you can come and join us live on YouTube, which is youtube.com slash high on homegrown, where you'll find most of our interviews and episodes. But for now, here is the interview with Dr. Ingham. Enjoy. Hello, hello. Hello, Dr. Ingham. How are you? I'm doing okay. Is, it okay. is it okay for us to call you Elaine? Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Just like to make sure, you know. <laughs> but thank, yep. you very, thank you very much for joining us. I know you must be very, very busy. It uh, kind of happens that way this time of year. Everybody's <laughs> getting ready to uh, go out and, and uh, you know start working on their fields, and they've got to figure out what seeds they're going to plant and how many and yeah it's uh, always busy this time of year awesome yeah the springtime's coming up soon we don't mm -hmm. want to miss it we'll quickly introduce ourselves so you know who you're talking to judging by which accents you hear so, <laughs> uh, i'm i am mackie i'm from the uk and we have greenbeard gb you want to say hi hi elaine how are you i'm um, greenbeard from ireland <laughs> All right, I can tell that accent right off the bat. We like to keep it keep it different, so you know who you're talking to. You see, that's right, absolutely, very important. And then we have a monkey from the USA. Hey, Elaine, how's it going? This is Monkey down here in the Southeast U.S. All right, what what part of the Southeast? Well, let's say the Gulf South, and let's leave it at that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, somewhere along that coast of Florida. Yep, into Texas. Yeah, pretty much that's it. You know, the legal, the legal sphere down here is pretty bad. So uh, I, I hide behind this avatar and leave everybody guessing where I really am. <laughs> oh, okay, that, that's a wise, wise thing. Indeed. And then we have TG from Canada. Yeah, good day, Elaine. Very nice to meet you. And uh, it's actually quite an honor to talk to you. I've followed you for quite a while right. and read your your soil biology primer many, many times. So it's very, yeah, very excited. Uh, I'm right. up in Canada, by the way. Yeah, Saskatchewan mm -hmm. specifically, out in the prairies. Okay. Which is why he's allowed his camera on. Yeah, I don't know if you can <laughs> see me with the, what you're doing there. But yeah, I got the, the old video going. Yep. All right. Well, all right. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about some soil then. All right. Where do we even begin? I mean, this is a, it's a complex topic. Monkey, GB, and myself, we are all hydroponic growers growing cocoa coir. We've done some experimenting with um, with soil, but TG is the real soil guy. He knows a lot about this stuff. He builds his own soil, makes up his own ingredients and things like that. So uh, maybe he has uh, the best questions for you. What do you think, TG? Okay. Well, I mean, my my questions aren't so much questions. They're just you know, like I said, I've followed your your work uh, among among others. You know, there's. Uh, uh, Tim Wilson's up there. We have Jeff Lowenfels and all the all the guys that, and everyone that's that's been doing this research for so long. Obviously, not specific to cannabis, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. For me, like the reason I started using a super soil or or a like an almost somewhat living soil was just for lack of ease. I, I'm a geologist by by trade, and so sometimes I have to go up north for you know three four weeks at a time cocoa isn't super uh, great for for that purpose so i had to develop a system for my non-green thumb girlfriend to then be able to take care of and emulating nature you know the rain falls the plants grow and that's it uh that seemed like the, the best way to go so i you know started looking into everything from there and and came across your stuff and and yeah i mean it all makes sense try and emulate nature right it's it's the it's the easiest way to go and Mother yeah. Nature's only been up to this for the last, um, let's see, 
rooted plants for the last billion years right. for fungi about 3.5 years billion years for fungi and you know it, uh, the evolutionary time they've been around for the higher um, organisms yeah and mother nature's had a little bit of time mm -hmm. to put that all together and figure out how to make it all work together experienced in it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it that, kind yeah. of make a you know the the green revolution is you know a fly by night latecomer so how did it all start for you when did you start getting involved in well microbiology and building soil and this kind of thing Yep, I got interested in microbiology when I was a child and my father, who was a professor at uh, Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, he was in veterinary medicine. So you can kind of see the link there. Um, my dad got, got, we got to the point where mom had three kids and taking their, care of three kids was just a little too much. Um, so she would tell my dad to I was his um, uh, responsibility. And so he <laughs> took me into his lab in the university. They didn't have rules about children in laboratory space at the time, but my father was kind of cognizant of the kind of mischief I could get up to. <laughs> and so he sat me down at a microscope and um, taught, showed me how to make the microscope work, what to do to you know, zoom in, zoom out and change to another sample. Um, and, you know, kind of a kind of fun to have my dad's um, total attention for about an hour of time. It was just amazing. So I was having a grand time and my dad said, OK, now I want you to take this sample and I want you to count the number of E. coli in that sample. Oh, OK. You know, so he had showed me what E. coli looks like and I could identify th things that in that sample that were definitely E. coli because size and shape, everything else is somewhat different from the things that were in that cool. culture. So he started me off on that path of uh, wanting to know what the little critters are doing uh, and having a pretty good background in that. My dad um, and I worked on my, my uh, science projects in junior high and high school and things like that. And um, it was always related in some way to the environment. Um, we did a bunch of testing on the Minnesota River um, above a um, particularly bad open pit um, land waste. Land, um, and uh, then, then did testing downstream and it was just like, oy, uh, mm. really bad news that all of the pollutants and toxic materials that were going into the river, even though that um, landfill met all of the state's requirements. So when was this? Uh, was this back in the 70s, 80s? Yeah, back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it was just the dawn of people understanding that just because you can't see it and smell it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt you. Mm. So, and then at, in college, in, or excuse me, in high school, my dad and, and I did a project on um, salt concentrations in water and what happens to organisms when they get into really salty water, or they get into not enough salt, salt mm -hmm. in, the, in, the soil, in the water. So a bunch of um, interesting projects because of my dad. So see, um, I blame it all on my father. <laughs> <laughs> they are usually to blame for most things so. they're they're kind of you know handy for that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're you're not always home all the time to defend yourself <laughs> so is there, was it a regular thing you did being out in the field and working with your dad uh, pretty much um you know it's mostly confined to the summer mm. uh, because you know minnesota winters are not really you don't want to be outside in a um, trying to track down um, cattle or sheep or horses or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so mostly in the summer times, I would be out working with my dad in some way. My dad used to take me out to uh, places where the the dairies, for example, where the the um, owner of the dairy had called up the university and was making claims against some um, company that um, sold him grain. Because he, what the farmer was saying, what the dairyman was saying, 
is all of my animals are showing symptoms of the same problem. And uh, I, you know, I have a herd of um, 310 uh, cows and already of them um, 15 are dead. Oh, and yeah, and that's, you know, say goodbye to all of your profit for the last couple of years. And so my dad you know, hopped in the car. I was around. My mom said, you've got to take Elaine because uh, I've got other things to do with the two girls. Yeah. Take Elaine. And she asks too many questions. <laughs> that's absolutely. And Elaine is not interested in pretty party dresses. That, that's like, don't make me. Um, so take Elaine, go out. And my dad would show me these plants um, before we got there and said he wanted me to go out and um, tell him something about how many of the plants in that field were um, uh, water hemlock that were, you know, this oak plant that's um, highly poisonous. So, you know, three or four different kinds of plants and I was supposed to be his spy. Of course, I didn't think of it that way, mm -hmm. but uh, I, that's what I was doing for my dad. So, you know, I'd, we'd come in, you know, we mid-afternoon snack and my dad would pull me to one side and say, so did you find any of those? And I said, yeah, the only plant growing in that field was the water hemlock. Wow. wow. So you put your animals in there and what are the animals going to eat? Oh, they're hungry. They're, they need some food. They're going to at least start taking some test mouthfuls of that stuff. And that can be enough to bring down a, a big cow. So, oh, so how old were you at this point? I think I was probably, um, uh, probably about nine or 10. Wow. So pretty young mm -hmm. and getting to understand some of the issues. I didn't really understand that my dad was kind of preparing me for this kind of, uh, the, the direction that I took in life that mm -hmm. biology is important that we have to understand what plants are out there because what foods are out there to feed the animals well if you're feeding them poison don't expect a lot of positive effect uh, on the ecosystem you're over grazing badly mm -hmm. and with you know like with the toxic chemicals uh, you've got to measure you can't just say i'm not seeing any toxic chemicals i don't see anything in the water it's soluble in the water mm -hmm. So you've got to be doing the testing. You have to take samples into a laboratory to discover what it is that's in the soil. So, yeah, all the interesting things that I got to do. Uh, when we were down in Colombia, um, I worked some at the, went into my dad's lab at the University de Bogota. Um, and my dad would point out um, things like, um, see these packages of pills they're all antibiotics now can you tell me which one is uh, streptomycin and it's like no i can't possibly tell um because those that's a bacterial material it's made by bacteria and they packages that packaged it up and he says do you believe that the professors here at this university are telling the students that they can identify the kind of antibiotic just by the color of the, of the pill. They change the color of the pill every two to three months. One, to make sure that the, the old stuff is all finished and over and, and um, sold. Mm. But secondly, because there's some changes in variations, they, you, know, you want to know exactly which species, subspecies, subcultivar of uh, bacterium was used to make this antibiotic and test whether there's variation hmm. between um, different subspecies and subvariants of the bacterium. And so learning about that stuff, and you just, you have to be horrified. It's bad enough when veterinarians are being told that they can identify an antibiotic or some other chemical by the color that they put in the coating. Mm. How many times did they um, recommend some, something to a grower and sold them um, the um, material, the pills, when it was something completely different because the color had changed? Yeah, that's shocking. Mm -hmm. And the... 
the doctors at the university were doing the same thing as well. Yeah, that here we are at the, the University of Bogota. And, you know, so my dad was there to root out those practices and make sure that none of, none of the students would pass on that kind of um, poor, very poor science mm -hmm. um, anymore in the future. So it was an eye opener to my dad. Um, and when I think back on it, it was a real eye opener to me when my dad sat down and talked to me about it. Do you remember when Elaine? And mm. you've got to be kidding you that that's why you were pointing out the color of the pills that the pills changed. You can't identify on the basis of color of a pill. So it, it, it helps you understand when you get into the third world and things aren't going so well for science because somebody's messing it up like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. That's why the whole scientific process that you need to follow. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. you want to know if that this is that pill, you've got to crunch it you know, into a fine dust and then you put it into an extracting agent and it turns this color. If you've got, you know, the color is a level of concentration or right. you've got to run it through these tests and get the peak on the, uh, chromatographs and yeah, all There's of those tools to use that should yep. be used. So when yep. these animals took these antibiotics, is there an effect of, you know, like they urinate into the ground? Does that have an effect on the microbiology in the actual soil, which they're grazing from? Absolutely. We mm. know that just like in human beings, we don't, well, it's planned that the passage of that medicine going through your digestive system, it has more than enough concentration mm. to make it all the way through. We don't want to run out of antibiotic oomph, you know, halfway through your small intestine mm. when the problem is in your large intestine and it hasn't even got there yet. So yeah, yeah it's planned that the concentration is going to be just a little bit more than wow. you absolutely need. So yes, you are um some of that antibiotic is being visited upon your property and you can sometimes see that in little patches hmm. where you know ev everything's dead or everything is growing really really fast and has an odd color to the vegetation right uh, all of that hmm. is indicators they've been doing that for a long time as well feeding farm animals antibiotics right they because it increases the weight of the animal by 10 percent or something Yep, but do you really want to be consuming the residual antibiotic that's still left in their muscle tissue? No, no way. No, <laughs> not so unless it's... I need to. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, uh, how many times do you ask that question at the uh, grocery counter mm. uh, where you're buying meat and you're saying, so how much hydro chlorine is in here how much you know what's what's the extra penicillium in here yeah. and like you said um, you can't even see that stuff you have to like get the right tools to be able to see that inside the muscle tissue and and all of yep. that when you buy meat that's crazy yep and that's why they um started having rules about how long the animal had to remain on the farm and it could not be sold until all of that passed through the system of the cow but when I when I was a kid, there you know there were a lot of cases where nobody cared, nobody yeah, understood. Yeah, yeah nobody so, knew, nobody checked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in the half century since I was a child, um, that's always always a daunting thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Four score and seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully, it it has improved the. The FDA, the US EPA, you know, have done amazing things to forward the science, but they don't keep up with the, with the cutting edge. Hmm. Um, it's hard to, it, you know, how do you know which way science is going to go? Yeah. But I, we've got to have a little bit better um, paying attention to what is going on in the world of chemistry and what are we going to be throwing out there and um, the work that I did with Klebsiella planticola is kind of an, an indicator of that, where this was a bacterium that is in the digestive system of everybody on this planet, on okay. um, um, all animals, all mammals, uh, you name it, on down through 
um, until the uh, smallest creatures in the ocean and in, in fresh water. It's found almost everywhere on this planet, certainly in the root system of every single plant on this planet probably has Klebsiella planticola. And so that's why these people thought that using this bacterium would be such a good thing hmm. because they could make these changes in the bacterium and that bacterium would end up in the root zone of every plant on this planet. And so these benefits could be, um, would, would be, you know, they would be apparent. Mm -hmm. So um, we, I had a graduate student that was interested in looking at some genetically engineered organism effects. And the first, uh, we looked at E. coli to begin with, and um, E. coli as compared to the genetically engineered E. coli, I don't even know what was different. I don't remember what was different in the engineered uh, bacterium, but it, it was innocuous. It didn't make any difference. So in that case, because we can't detect any difference, is it safe to use? Or next week when somebody tries a different method of assessing its effect, all of a sudden we're going to discover. Yeah. yeah. It's so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, what's going on? Mm. So we, his committee um, um, for he's working on his PhD with me and, uh, and he had, uh, wanted to look for, a, bac a bacterium that grew in soil. So we knew what, um, its functions of the adult, uh, of the, not the adult, sorry, of the parent, there we go, parent organism would actually was, mm. and then when they genetically engineered that bacterium, he wanted to find something that, you know, was, was very different, not kind of an innocuous, oh, I remember what it was in the E. coli. They had engineered this E. coli to produce an antibiotic that was, you know, and not very significant in any metabolic pathway, really didn't do much. It was just a marker for the E. coli. So you could identify how many of those um, particular genetically engineered E. coli um, grew and remained in the system after some period of time. So there wasn't much benefit hmm. to supporting that genetic engineered um, characteristic. And so you could easily see why that could go by the wayside when you're working with bacteria. Mm -hmm. But with Klebsiella, what they did was take the genetic material out of another uh, bacterium that was a uh, a, a, quite a wide divergence in uh, genetic history or, or, you know, it's grandparents and the grandparents and the, you know, going on back in time, they were widely divergent. So for Mazymomonas, um, pulled out these um, um, sequences, injected that into the DNA of the, the uh, parent Klebsiella planticula, and finally found one of those um, offspring that could now make alcohol. So mm. managed to get the three or four um, different enzymes into the DNA of the parent. Wow. Um, so that the, this um, genetically engineered organism would start producing alcohol. And so the idea was that because now it could use um, any kind of uh, plant material, we already knew that, that it would decompose, you know, all kinds of um, organic material, anything green or brown or, or, you know, organic material could be consumed by this particular bacterium. That's what makes it so broad, um, broad spectrum around the world. And um, so they um, wanted to have, instead of field burning, farmers could rake up all of their um, residues from their fields. And when you start talking to um, a grass seed growers, you go, yeah, this would be a big boon for them. Um, rake it all up, put it into a big bucket on the farm, inoculate with the genetically engineered Klebsiella planticula so that alcohol would be produced. Oh. So you cover the, the top of your um, 
big container, let it go anaerobic in there. And in approximately two weeks, you could open the spigot at the bottom of this bucket of this big container and out would come a liquid that was uh, 70 pr proof. Wow. Pure ethanol? Yeah. Oh. Pure, almost or pure almost, ethanol. What, what yeah, was the 70%. other component? Oh, well, you know, sugars and proteins oh, and all sure. the things that, you know, you the, the bacteria. Fractional but, distillation that away, and then you'd have a bunch mm -hmm. of organic yeah, leaf vodka. Run it, yeah, <laughs> run it through something that has very small, you know, the liquid runs through, the, but, huh. but the bacteria are all caught on the surface, so you're not actually consuming. Uh, um, so they thought, fantastic, we've got a product that absolutely everyone is going to want to use. And I don't so, know, I, I don't want to use that. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people that do. Well, you don't, you know, think of all the things we actually do with alcohol. Mm, it's yeah. not just something you drink, it makes, yeah, yeah. well, it's fuel for, um, and it's uh, cleaning agents, uh, yeah, and, yes. you know, it's all those things. So the farmer would have take something that was a real problem and convert it into something they could make money. So doesn't this sound great? Mm -hmm. Okay, but what's the effect then of all the residues in the bottom of that bucket? What do you do with that? So, you know, the liquid that comes out of this interaction, uh, the genetically engineered organism making all that alcohol, it leaves a large part of um, plant material plus the bacterium Mm -hmm. So what do you do with that? Well, you spread it out in the field because you have lost none of the nitrogen or the phosphorus or the sulfur or magnesium. So you oh, yeah. have increased the concentration of all of those nutrients in the glop that's left. So they were going to spread this out on the um, fields. And somebody said, well, I, I think you better check that out. You know, what's the effect mm -hmm. of What's the effect on plant of alcohol in the root system of a plant? And uh, everyone was like, I, I don't know, you know, it, it's just, it's carbon mostly, maybe a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus and stuff. And so it, it's, it's just going to speed up decomposition of everything that's uh, in the soil. So this, this should work pretty well. And when my graduate student and I, when Mike and I um, looked, looked at what was happening we both kind of looked at each other and went oh this is going to be bad oh no because you have to have anaerobic conditions in order to um, turn on the enzymes that produce alcohol right right and then when you got the oxygen to it it's aerobic at that point yep it's aerobic um, until those microorganisms start growing really fast on the glop that you put into the field high amounts of um, foods for the microorganisms, they're just going to go crazy. Mm -hmm. And that means now you have the anaerobic conditions in and around every plant in that field. Yeah, so alcohol is going to be produced in that soil and that would kill your plant. And so we started trying to explain that to the other, well, there were two plant pathologists on his uh, committee and uh, you know, a couple other people, microbial metabolisms, things like that. And they were all like, no, 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 that, that won't happen. That just can't happen. So he started his experiments where he had the parent Klebsiella planticula that, you know, without any modification and just put water in the system along with the bacterium. The next set of um, containers uh, were um the genetically engineered microorganism so um and then there was another another control of just the plants no addition of the parent no addition of the genetically engineered organism so you know pretty straightforward test it was all in the same soil he knew the biology in that soil was really good so got it started in the special greenhouse where the organisms couldn't escape as because both Mike and I did not want to have this critter escape out into the real world. Mm -hmm. So put it in, he planted a wheat plant seedling that had just germinated into each one of those containers. And then I got a phone call on Saturday morning about five to six days after he had started this experiment. And he was, he was very upset. And I had a hard time understanding him because he was so upset. And he was finally got him to describe what had gone on. He said he'd gone into the greenhouse 
and about half of the plants were dead. And so my experiment's been ruined. It's just terrible. I'm going to have to start over. And if I start over, I'm not going to get the job that I want. And no, I'm just kind of, okay, calm down, calm down. Mm -hmm. Start pulling the containers out and put them into their group. So here's the control group of just the soil, just water added. And they've all grown a little bit. In five days, you know, that's about, that's about right. Mm -hmm. In the parent Klebsiella planticula, um, um, containers with those wheat seedlings, those wheat seedlings were already up at the top of the container and trying to push the leaves out mm. through the lid. So look at how much increase in, in size. You know, if, you've, if you're growing plants that are like this after five days versus you're growing plants that are like this after five days, right. you're kind of going, all right, we're, mm -hmm. we're going we're gonna to make some money here. All of the plants in the Klebsiella planticula GMO um, bacteria added in, they were all dead, every single one of them. Wow. And they were just little splots of slime on the surface of the soil, which wow. says to me the alcohol um, production was so great in those soils that in the container that each one of those um, plants were in, it was enough to uh, have the alcohol move out into the atmosphere of that container and basically destroyed the um, cell membranes of all of the um, cells in the plant. Wow. So tell me, genetically engineered organisms are of no greater um, um, of no greater um, nastiness. I'm not getting. Mm. The, I'm not getting exactly the right words. No, but we know um, it's been part of many horror films, isn't it? There's a genetically modified organism that gets out there into the real world, and just we didn't understand what it could really do, and it starts annihilating mm -hmm. things. It yep. sounds like a Kurt Vonnegut Ice Nine situation. Like, oh my gosh. Mm. Yeah, who could have been so stupid? Because if you take, if you extrapolate those results to let's let Klebsiella planticula. And two weeks after we were looking at this um, uh, effect in the laboratory, there was supposed to be a release of this Klebsiella planticula engineered to produce alcohol out into the real world in some, um, in some uh, agricultural fields just south of Corvallis. What would have been the results of that? Do you think it would have spread to other fields? In oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, there was a there was a, a test Doomsday. that was yeah, there was a test that they did in Louisiana where they put out a genetically engineered um, bacterium that would increase nitrogen fixation in the root systems of alfalfa. They just didn't think about the club, the um, that particular bacterium, nitrogen fixing bacterium. Sure, it would make more nitrogen be fixed, but at what cost to the plant? So instead of the alfalfa being like, you know, three or four feet tall, it was like two or three inches tall. Damn. Sure, it was fixing more nitrogen, but the cost of fixing that nitrogen was just dramatically, but the bacterium had been introduced into the real world. Oh, gosh. And so today, like my understanding is, and, you know, it's, it's in some of the internal journals of um, the EPA, um, that bacterium can now be found every place on this planet. What? Yeah. You're supposed, you, to go, you're supposed to come and teach us about soil, Elaine, and now you just terrified us. It's contagious, man. My mind's and, going to bioweapon. This could be an engineered bioweapon to wipe out a crop. But it doesn't. Across. It doesn't stop at the borders of your enemy. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. True. It True. it's you know it takes over worldwide. Luckily, yeah. that nitrogen fixing bacterium doesn't compete well with other right. nitrogen fixers. Phew, we and, that. Yeah. you know we here we were at, at the lab in in Corvallis and going. I think we have to tell the director of the um, of the of the EPA here that this is what we found. And at first, they did not want to believe us. They, oh, it's an error in your in in your methodology. It's a no. Look, you you can't 
you can't make this up. Come look at the dead plants. That's what the effect of this genetically engineered bacterium is. It, only if you don't understand how things work. And most people don't understand soil. They do not comprehend mm -hmm. what you have to have in the soil to not use inorganic fertilizers. You don't need them. You don't need pesticides. You don't need to be worried about weeds because if you fix the biology correct, you will not have weeds mm. or the weeds will be the sick, unhappy, not doing very, very well plants. And your crop plants are going to be expressing the maximum of their genetic potential, which means they're going to have every single nutrient that that plant requires is given to it while it's growing. So you can have the highest yields that you're ever going to get because you're reaching the maximum potential of that plant. So that's what we're working on is how do we get these organisms back into our agricultural systems? Because what we've done to our agricultural systems is to completely destroy the soil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're trying to grow plants in dirt. It's mm -hmm. an inert, um, you know, clay, silt, uh, sand mixture, and that's it. No See? organic matter. No. Elaine doesn't like dirt either. It's not just me. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not dirt. Soil is not dirt. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's like, uh, you know, somebody says the, the dirt word and you kind of, everybody else in the class goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. TG's had fights before because of it. <laughs> yeah. we, we like to troll TG over. Yeah. Don't put the seed uh, in the just, dirt. It's dirt yeah. is waste. Soil mm. is like Elaine said, complex, full of, you know, minerals and rocks and organic stuff and microbes and fungi. All the and, nutrients in yeah. a plant available form that you could possibly want, such mm -hmm. that every second of every day that that plant is alive and living, it's going to get all the nutrients it needs. So when that plant is not stressed in any way, it's immune. To diseases and pests and uh, those other problems it, mm. it just it's it's a barrier nothing can reach inside it's when that plant doesn't have what it needs and it's kind of limping along trying to well if i take this over here and i put it over there i'll be able to shore up the battlefield no the disease one right. so we've got to understand the soil better and every plant is different um Every plant growing in whatever climate it's in is going to be needing different things. Mm -hmm. So how do you make certain that you're going to deliver the things in uh, Saskatchewan or in Toronto or in London or in California? How are you going to make sure that we're putting all the right things in for all these different places and climates and time of year? It's called making compost. Mm -hmm. No really good compost from your locality mm. yeah local we microbes want... are a big 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 deal in the whole compost making thing aren't they absolutely so you Thank want you. those things that are from your bioregion you don't want you know if i'm trying to grow corn in california i do not want the organisms from iowa to try and grow my corn with because that's not going to work well at all because the climate, the temperature, the moisture, when that moisture comes, uh, how much at, a, at one time, you cannot co allow compaction in your fields. So we've got to go back and say to people that want to grow massive acreages, and the way they do that is to till everything with their big equipment, you've got to say, no, you cannot do that. You cannot till good soil you live 50 you lose 50 percent of the beneficial organisms in that soil when you till wow and so when you think of you know this is something that's always just made made me kind of pull my hair and uh frustration is that in the organic world you're told that the only way you can deal with weeds is to go till them into the soil you don't have soil. And so that organic material that goes into the 
it's dirt, um, it's not going to decompose. And it now becomes a problem. Mm. Um, if we want to grow cannabis that is 12 feet tall, you've got to have yes. the right biology in that soil. Otherwise, you're going to get a little plant that's you know somewhere around two to three feet. Same seed, same cultivar, everything, but look at the difference that the biology in the field has on that cannabis when you want to be picking the flowerets, when you want to be, yeah, how many, how many flower, you know, how many places do you have the flowering occurring on a plant that's 12 feet tall mm -hmm. as compared to a plant that's three feet tall? So Might you be interested in this? Well, <laughs> you know, maybe. We don't know about this whole growing cannabis thing. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. What, me? Grow cannabis? No, what, what is cannabis? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking, when, the, when, when a grower goes out and wants to find good soil, is it better to find a good field with a good soil and a microbiology in it in the first place, or, or is it better to add things to it and build it yourself? It's always easier to let Mother Nature have set the, the table for mm -hmm. your plants because you're walking into a system where you're not going to have to do much adjustment of what the biology is in that soil. Mm -hmm. um, when you're walking into a situation where you know they're using toxic chemicals and when you ask them what toxic chemicals have they been using over the last five years and they all just like look at each other like toxic chemicals. We, we don't we, we don't use toxic chemicals. Uh, let's see. Um, I've walked into your um, you know storage shed and there was glyphosate and there was 2,4-D and there was something I can't even read what the name is and then you know and they all have great names like uh, you know beast. very friendly root, root killer. <laughs> yeah yeah you're yeah. yeah friendly everyday root killer. Yeah. Um, they always use such you know yeah bombs away or you know, oh, yeah just uh, bravo yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you've got to overcome those things and the way you have to get rid of those toxic chemicals in that dirt because that's what we're talking about now. That's dirt not soil. Um, you probably have less than half a percent organic matter in that dirt uh, and you've got to get rid of the residuals of all these toxic chemicals mm. so you've got to get really really good compost with all of the sets of microorganisms you've got to have bacteria and it's the beneficial bacteria not the bad guy bacteria and we can go into how you select and and prevent one from become from affecting um, you've got to have uh, fungi Again, all the beneficials, none of the diseases. You've mm -hmm. got to have protozoa. Again, uh, all the beneficials, none of the diseases. Uh, fun fungal feeding, bacterial feeding, and predatory nematodes. None of the root feeders, thank you. And mm -hmm. if you get those right um, nematodes into the soil, you are not going to have to worry about root feeding nematodes. So we've got to get all of this. Each of these organisms in that food web have multiple jobs that they've got to do. And so if you want to be able to just put your seedlings or your starts into the field in, in a furrow, you know, cover them back up, let them grow, where you can be assured that you're not going to have weeds coming up, where you're not going to have insect pests, you're not going to have fungal diseases or bacterial diseases or whatever else, you're not a, a, attracting any of the grasshoppers that are going to wipe, wipe out your crop, and you can go fishing for the summer and then you come back and harvest. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that lifestyle? Oh, yes. That does sound very, yep. very interesting. You and me. Yep. <laughs> I want to just sit on my backyard and sip the mint julep and watch it all grow. So it's, it sounds like a dream, though. I, can, can it actually happen? It can actually happen. Wow. Yep. And so we teach people how to use um, the biology, how to grow it, how to go out and find the, uh, the correct microorganisms and get those organisms growing in a compost. There's some, there's some interesting tricks. You know, we keep coming up with new things and, and tweaking, you know, what human being cannot tweak. And 
we make certain that all of the correct biology gets out there into the root system of the plant. And ultimately, with all the right critters, the microarthropods, the insects, the spiders, all the good guy insects, um, walk through your soil. And now their bodies are covered with all this great sets of microorganisms. They walk up the stem of your plant, leaving behind this trail of really good organisms that the plant now feeds. Hmm. So up to the top, onto the leaves, onto the flowers, onto the crop of whatever kind that you're growing, you're getting it all inoculated with these really beneficial organisms. So kind of like human beings you know is that people right at first would always look at me and kind of say "Ooh, you mean there's there's bacteria on my apples and you want me to eat that <laughs> yeah yeah because those are the bacteria that are most beneficial to you yeah you you are 50 percent bacteria right that's right more than 50 percent mm. so um there are more cells of bacteria than it, than you have cells in your body. How do so, we get them off? <laughs> <laughs> you die. You, you don't. Drink bleach. Yeah, drink bleach. <laughs> drink bleach. Yeah, well, that would work. Yes. <laughs> yep. Maybe so, a strong light down your throat. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how would a grower go to make some of the best kind of compost for their plants? How would you even begin? You want to um, work out a recipe and typically to get rid of all of the disease causing organisms, you've got to either get the temperature high enough, long enough in each part of the compost. So the center of that compost pile is going to get up to those temperatures so that you can kill in the center of that pile hmm. all the disease causers, all the weed seeds, all the things you don't want in your soil mm -hmm. can be gotten rid of using the heat that the microorganisms are going to generate without yeah. you having hot, to do dude. anything. Really yeah. hot, like 60. Oh, man. Yeah. Celsius. You can... I have, yeah, I've gone over 60 quite a few times. Cool. Um, <laughs> it's always I've, exciting when you take your probe out there and it's just, you see the steam coming as soon as you open it and you're just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who needs, who needs heaters? I've got my compost really? pile. Yeah. Just huddle over it. That's all. Uh, and, and it is, you know, this, it would be a way of making it through a winter, but you would have to have lots and lots, <laughs> lots and lots of piles. Um, um, but, you know, when people do compost piles that they put uh, pipelines in and, you know, wind it around and down this, and then up, and then they run that through their greenhouse, you can keep a greenhouse cooking uh, at the high temperatures that you want through the coldest of winters. Wow, that's a good idea, man. The heat yep. keeps the greenhouse warm, which keeps the compost warm, which keeps the greenhouse warm. Yep, isn't isn't Mother Nature amazing? Yeah, very, very yeah, it cool. is. She's got it all figured out. I, we have to start paying attention to Mother Nature and doing mm. what nature does instead of like patting Mother Nature on the head. That's all right, darling. You we, don't we, really understand. <laughs> yeah, it's our turn. What <laughs> arrogance? Yeah, they really. It is shocking. We, we have modern technology. Oh, yeah. It just yeah. means we that have fossil you... fuel foods. Yeah, we had something <laughs> in America called the Dust Bowl when we thought we knew what we were doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was a really yeah. good indicator, wasn't it? That oh, we yeah. knew how to deal with Mother Nature. We we have a Nukem approach. And, mm. you know, if they're not doing exactly what I want them to do, you should kill them. No, no, no. My attitude is, uh, Mother Nature has finally gotten tired of human beings ignoring what she had to say to them. Mm -hmm. And she speaks in the interactions of all these organisms in the soil. And so she sends, uh, you know, just a, a few tiny disease causing organisms to kind of like, hey, guys, uh, maybe you should pay attention to what I'm doing. Like, like gluten intolerancy. Yeah. Celiac. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. All these diseases where you no longer have the right sets of microorganisms in your digestive system. Mm. So your digestive system doesn't work well. And then, you know, when 
we don't pay attention to mother nature she's going to send a nastier creature out mm -hmm. to attack and consume and if we don't pay attention to that she's just going to get nastier she's just going to keep on getting more and more irate with us until we're gone so wouldn't we like to assure our future you know and start understanding how we should be raising crops how we should behaving be behaving towards the soil the good Don't point you make we are organisms on the world too and you know subject to the the conditions that mother nature puts forth just like the plants are so yeah we should absolutely um think more about this like i, I love your earlier point about the the small stuff we can't see being able to hurt us and like compost that that's one of the main reasons that i i tell people you should compost is because like the whole climate change thing which is generally affecting plant health and climate can, or growing conditions all over the world and stuff to make all of these crazy gmo type things necessary or at least necessary in the eyes of people um, in charge to uh, be able to produce the crops but composting not only do you get like the best fertilizer soil amendment uh, that's known to to man but the carbon footprint that you don't like not throwing um, compostable material into the, the landfill is massive mm -hmm. because not like you're producing acids you're producing all kinds of nasty crap when it's decomposing under those anaerobic conditions in the landfill not to mention methane which is one of the worst greenhouse gases we know of so yep. nitrous yeah. oxide ammonia yeah, so much phosphine yeah. gases it's just all these um volatile organic acids that are being made and they go blow downwind and they kill the leaves on the surfaces of your uh, yeah. of the trees of the plants it's how can we be so blind it leaches Why? into the soil into the water you know like mm -hmm. yeah. yep and every time you have erosion that's something that was preventable mm -hmm. if you would only get the right sets of microorganisms growing into your soil your root systems go down not sideways when I can't remember, I can't count the number of times I was told as a kid that root systems of plants only went down maybe two or three inches, and then they would go sideways because they were hitting a compaction layer. Where'd that mm. compaction layer come from? Well, who's got the big equipment mm. driving over their their property? I always think of, that does make me think back to the organic growers again. They have to drive across their property something like 10 to 14 times a year in order to constantly be dealing with the weeds. Mm. Instead, what you want to be doing is making sure that you're getting a good enough set of fungi, beneficial fungi into your soil so that you shift that soil from a nitrate dominated condition, which is what happens when you're dealing with aerobic bacteria growing in soil it makes alkaline um, products so that the enzymes that will fix will take that nh4 tear the hydrogens off convert it into nitrate no3 that's what happens when you're in a bacterial dominated soil every time you till you slice and dice everything except the bacteria so we push things to being weeds because that's the form of nitrogen that weeds require is nitrate. Mm. As you start putting in more fungal foods and more like cellulose and lignans and complex food resources, you're gonna start growing more fungi. And fungi drop the pH in the soil down to 5.527, which is our desirable range for most of our agricultural plants are in that 5.5 to 7 range and it's the fungi that will get your soil there and keep your soil there and how they get rid of the weeds are the fungi will take that no3 and convert it back into nh4 or they never let the bacteria get um, as um, numerous as they are they're the biomass of the fungi it's greater and so your soil is going to stay in that favored level for most of our row crops, most of our veggies. So we want to keep the NH4. Who does that for us? Fungi. 
Now, if you go anaerobic, if things are really so nastily compacted that you can't get oxygen through, you can't get water to go through, now you've got runoff. Now you have leaching. Now you have loss of nutrients going out down the hill into the pond, the river, the lake, the stream. And we're just destroying ourselves once again. Mm. Uh, it's which, as if Mother Nature knows what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Just leave it alone. <laughs> Start to understand what she's been doing for the last four billion years mm. to make this place a Garden of Eden. And we keep coming along and destroying it. So we have to change our attitude. Who, mm. Who's in charge here? Not us. So start working with nature, not against. So we want to make sure that our soil doesn't go anaerobic because then, of course, alcohol production yeah, yes. destroys the tissues of your plant. Good luck trying to stay alive without any plant material to eat. What you're talking about here is like farming on uh, a big scale, you know, with the big machines. Um, what about for smaller time growers? How would you suggest a, a home grower uh, like like me or you know any one of us? Or we all grow at home. How would you suggest us making some nice compost that's going to help the plants in our yep. back garden grow, for example? Yep. You, you want that. It's the same mental approach, really. You're just going to do it at a smaller size. You get like a... Um, you know, the hardware cloth that you can make a ring out and stand it up. Right. Um, and then um, into that ring, you put the components of your compost pile. You want, fifth, um, excuse me, um, 5%. Oh, gosh, it's been too long. Go through the, <laughs> um, go through the recipe. So it's 60% woody materials. So brown like dead leaves when they come off the tree and they hit the ground in the autumn, you want to rake all of those up because that's a really good component. All those great organisms on the surfaces of those leaves, you're getting a massive diversity mm. and that's what we want. Right. And then you want 30% um, uh, green materials. So plant material that hasn't pulled all the nutrients out of the plant into the root system yet. Mm -hmm. So cut them while they're still green dry them down if you need to store them for a while you know woody materials those are really easy to store so other woody materials are things like wood chips shredded wood um you know chipped wood uh, the leaf material anything with a big cob to it uh or a big stock um so you um you know break all that up into like two inch three inch um little uh, strands Mm -hmm. uh, it, because if you try to turn a pile with great big long grass strands, you'll mm -hmm. drive yourself crazy. <laughs> um, so 60% um, woody materials, brown materials, wide C to N ratio is wide carbon to nitrogen ratio is another way to look at that. 30% green materials, carbon to nitrogen ratio, 30 to one. Um, and then uh, um, high nitrogen containing materials, 10%. So 60 plus 30 plus 10 equals 100. Yay, That's I got it. the numbers right. It's about right. right. <laughs> uh -huh. So um, that's the mix that you want. And so well, the way I always do it at small scale is to get like uh, 40 to um, five gallon buckets or 20 liter buckets. And you're going to fill up um, out of the out of 20, say, you're going to fill up um, five of them are going to be um, high nitrogen, things like manure, uh, legume material, any nitrogen fixing plant that you can find uh, in tropical places. It, the fun, the joy of tropical places is almost every tree is a nitrogen fixer. You have trouble not finding <laughs> high nitrogen containing materials because everything fixes nitrogen. So um, food waste, you know, whatever food waste people might be producing. A lot of small scale people will make a deal like with uh, the, the local Starbucks and mm. take all of their coffee grounds. So great green yeah. stuff is what that makes. Um, you do want to have it, the water run through it and most of the oils go off um, when you're making coffee from it. So now that's good um, green plant material. If you don't uh, make coffee from the grounds, and it's really kind of on the brown side. 
Mm. So lots of little, you know, maybe the easiest thing to do is come and take uh, some of our foundation classes. And we go through all of the um, theory behind, uh, um, you know, solidified in, in the th theoretical approach, um, uh, information about how mother nature works. And then the next class is uh, how to make compost. And uh, we are just starting up doing hands-on composting um, sessions at uh, the farm in Oregon. So force yourself to come out and spend some beautiful couple a week or so in beautiful Oregon in the middle of the summertime. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the next class is uh, how to make compost teas and extracts because it's way easier to apply liquid yes. than it is to apply solids. And then we have a microscope class where we teach you how to measure these organisms so you can manage them correctly. If you're just guessing that, oh, oh that looks like it's mostly fungal and it's in fact mostly bacterial, you are going to be an unhappy camper. Hmm. So getting a method to measure what's actually in there. And you can make the thermal piles, you can make piles uh, that the worm composts, uh, worm composts uh, make that where the worms, the earthworms are in charge, uh, slightly different. Um, the uh, thermal piles are for people who have uh, five days in a row that they can uh, keep good watch on that pile and turn it when it needs to be turned. When that temperature starts going up too high, you want to be able to turn the the pile, um, and we got our, we have a couple of really good tricks that we've learned. When your pile is at 175 degrees Fahrenheit, whoa, that's hot. <laughs> that you do not put your fingies in that pile. Um, what are you going to do? Because of course, if you're up at 175 for more than 12 hours, the middle of your pile is going very anaerobic. And alcohol is probably mm. going to be produced because that's what bad guys do. They make alcohol. <laughs> and so when you have 180 degrees Fahrenheit reached and you've got alcohol in the middle of the pile, what happens to your pile? Boom! And a big fire. No now, way. way, yeah. Go to any composting operation where you know because they're not doing a good job of it in most uh, municipalities they're just piling all of the the stuff together and kind of crossing their fingers and hoping hmm. sooner or later it goes on fire wow. and uh well like it i think um i think the san francisco um composting area uh, municipal waste is deposited there and they're supposedly making compost out of it um, their compost piles are still burning and it has been burning for a long time. Now they may have gotten them out. I don't know. That's but, crazy. Silent Hill or what? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> talk about heating there. your house for the winter time. Hey, no doubt. Yeah. So I think I have, do I, I've got to check my calendar and see what's up here yep i'm supposed to be going to a compost preparation um system so i have to um say goodbye unfortunately oh oh that's a shame who's having lots yeah. of fun yeah i know we got to do this again i think so yeah. if can, that would be okay compost yeah. for sure. i love I it right just I just YouTube search compost fire and you're right. I see, I actually see firemen with hoses here. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like now we've uh, spoken, it's actually a good idea to leave now. We all need to go check out compost. Frozen <laughs> <Right. laughs> solid, so I should be okay. <laughs> You've just put yours on hold until thaw yeah. happens. Yep. And it's, bleh, it's great when it happens too. Does yep. it ever get going quick? But yeah, we yep. very much appreciate your time and thank you very much for coming to yeah. join us and talk to us. We, we'll we do appreciate it. For sure. Uh, thank you so much. I will, I'll enjoy coming to talk with you guys anytime. You, thank you very uh, much. Good questions, <laughs> good repartee. I love it. Awesome. Well, I'll, okay. I'll contact through email and we'll sort out another time when you might be free and we can do it again whenever it's good for you. Okay, sounds good. Awesome. Take care. Thank, thank, thank you, you Dr. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Ciao.
and there we go everybody that was the interview with dr elaine ingham uh, it was really awesome to speak with her she definitely knows her shit and we will be getting her back on the show on the 5th of april at 9 p.m gmt i'm not sure what time that is for you right now because we're going through the whole daylight savings time where some places have changed their time zones and others haven't but our usual show time 9 p.m gmt is when our interview will go live with dr elaine ingham on the 5th of april so come and join us and if you want to know more about dr ingham then head over to soilfoodweb.com and you'll find everything you need to know about her right there but for now we'll leave you to the rest of your week i hope you're staying good and high uh if you haven't already make sure you signed up to percysgrowing.com and we'll see you on friday for the grow guides which is all about trying and curing so until then have a good week see you in a bit goodbye